to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I am here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Lots of stuff to talk about today. Mm -hmm. We are going to talk about an enormous new debt threshold that we have, $31 trillion, which is just barely below the $31.4 trillion that Congress has artificially mandated we can't go over until they artificially raise the debt ceiling again. We're going to talk about oil prices. This has been breaking news all morning. We're going to talk about the future of immigration policy for the Biden administration. Something is afoot. Tony Blinken is in South America. We think we know where this is headed. We have a guest who's going to come on and talk to us about war in Ethiopia and the the recent coup in Burkina Faso. Mm-hmm. You know the capital of Burkina Faso? Ouagadougou. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now I know. Um, we're going to talk about a new uh, aircraft carrier. Believe it or not, this is our 12th aircraft carrier. And I think that that's more than all other countries in the world combined. I also feel like this, I mean, this is the Gerald Ford aircraft carrier. Yes, the SS Gerald Ford. Which I'm pretty sure was supposed to, pretty sure originally it was supposed to cost $1 billion. $1 billion. Right? Yes. I mean, maybe I'm remembering this wrong. Definitely was not supposed to cost $13 billion. Yeah. It was supposed to be ready years ago. And it just, to me, okay, we have a $13 billion aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. It's the the latest technology. And this was one of Donald Trump's pet projects. Did you hear what he said about it? Uh, well, I know released. he didn't he not like it because he did. It uses this different kind of uh, system. It doesn't use yeah. the sort of old fashioned, right. basically a slingshot, right? right? The slingshot, slingshot to to send the jets off. It uses some kind of electromagnetic pulse right. thing, right? Right. This is my yeah. Push them off. off. He didn't like it. No, I think he, he was he like, said, "It looks weird." <laughs> well, I mean, he might be right. He might be right. Maybe it does look weird. It just looks like a bit. Is that what a boondoggle looks like? That's what it looks like yeah, to me. Yeah, that's a boondoggle. Yeah. You know, just as an aside, a totally unnecessary aside. I um, I flew out to an aircraft carrier once, the USS Eisenhower, mm-hmm. when I was, I forget where I was stationed, somewhere in the Middle East. And, um, you know, a ripcord catches you. Yeah. So you go from like 160 miles an hour to zero. I in, saw this in Top Gun too. It was seconds. cool. Yeah. That was that was bad enough. But being launched off the the deck, where this this device just kind of throws you off the end of the deck, uh-huh. and as you clear the deck, you drop like close to the ocean, and then come up. It made my stomach so upset that I couldn't eat anything for the rest of the day. Oh, <laughs> and I yeah. didn't eat again until the next day. No, that sounds... Oh, it was It bad. makes me feel bad just hearing about oh, it. Yeah, it's yeah I don't bad. like it. It's bad. We're also going to talk about FBI recordings that were introduced yesterday in this Oath Keepers uh, trial here in Washington, D.C. Um, the reason why this is interesting and important is that the FBI uh, had both video and audio of the now infamous meeting at this cheap hotel in Arlington, Virginia, where the Oath Keepers were talking about their plans for January 6th and the weapons that they intended to use to disrupt the counting of the electoral votes, which tells us that the FBI had infiltrated the group earlier to the point where they were comfortable planting both video cameras and electronic bugs uh, to... uh, 
to round everybody up. Yeah. I mean, uh, we'll, we will talk about this later. But again, uh, in, it will be interesting to see what percentage of these militia groups end up being either FBI agents or FBI informants. Exactly right. And I think, again, I think it is useful to allow our relatively recent past to inform our understanding of the present. That's exactly right. And to recall right. what, how, you know, how how did the, uh, the Black Panthers become just completely defanged as an organization? It was through this kind of infiltration, mm-hmm. right? How did the uh, communist parties in the U.S. That's right. Uh, you know, uh, reach their eventual demise, right? Mm-hmm. It was through witch hunts, like uh, those organized by McCarthy, but also through this infiltration. It made them collapse. You and know, so again, like a, a couple, in a couple decades, is everyone going to go, oh yeah, the Oath Keepers was like, you know, 59% FBI informants? Right. I don't know, but like this is what has happened steadily throughout the past. It has been- Time and time again. Sort of the hand inside the puppet yeah. of the thing we're supposed to be really scared of- That's right. Is law enforcement. Yeah, and it's I mean, law it, you know, personally, I, I think these militias. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I think these militias are uh, not more frightening to me mm-hmm. than what the American Communist Party mm-hmm. m- might have been advocating, or certainly what the Black Panthers were advocating. You know, I have a lot of sympathy for those views, mm-hmm. but uh, the process looks awful similar. I'll say is what I'll say. And but you know, the FBI- whether you know, even though I, I all, the the one percent or whatever the. 13 percenters? Yeah. The th- Who are they? 12 percenters? Whatever. Like yeah. yeah. Oath Keepers, the Cowboys, all, all of these guys. I, I, They frighten me a lot more. Agreed. But I don't, it doesn't mean that this same thing isn't happening. And, and we shouldn't be surprised by this because the FBI has been doing this for 65 years. Right. You know, they, they infiltrate groups all across the country. I'll tell you a, a quick story that Medea Benjamin told me. Medea Benjamin said that, uh, that a volunteer showed up one day, middle-aged woman, uh, she wants to be a part of Code Pink. She wants to participate. Medea says, great, the more the merrier. The woman's making signs and she's going to protest and what have you. Well, they decided one day to protest in front of Dick Cheney's house. Dick Cheney used to own a house in McLean on Chainbridge Road. Mm-hmm. Nothing special, just a little normal split level. Now he lives in this, you know, $20 million compound in St. Michael's, Maryland. But anyway... Uh, they they go to Dick Cheney's house and they've got their signs, you know, say no to war and war, whatever. And the moment she said, literally the second that one of them actually stepped on the driveway because they were on the sidewalk. You're under one of arrest. Them, yeah. This woman pulls out a badge, an FBI credential. You're under arrest. Cuffs, uh, whoever it was. I don't remember if it was if it was Teague or I don't remember whoever yeah. it was. But she said, you know, Code Pink, yeah, the most peaceful group that's out there. Yeah. All they do is make signs and protest. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, this is what the FBI does. Yeah, so we'll see. Are, are they doing it? Are they not doing it in this case for the first time? We'll see. Hey, speaking of um, offensive figures. Yeah. Yesterday uh, in the afternoon, we got all these reports that Joe Biden was going to unveil new measures to protect abortion access. And so I thought, okay, well, we'll, let's be ready to talk about these tomorrow. Let's see what they are. Uh, Wow. (laughs) Let me tell you what they are. Uh, I looked all over to see if I could find any more. No, what I can find is two things. Uh, The Department of Health and Human Services is going to allocate more than $6 million in grant money to expanding reproductive health care access. That 
is more concrete sounding than what this appears to actually be earmarked for. Uh, So this is according to Forbes. The $6 million is going to be used for research grants to figure out how to expand family planning services and reduce teenage pregnancies. Oh, boy. CNN puts it in slightly more exciting terms to protect and expand access to reproductive health care and improve service delivery, promote the adoption of healthy behaviors, reduce blah, 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 reduce existing health. So... CNN's description sounds slightly, slightly more concrete, but six million dollars toward this. The other the other thing. So that's one. That's fully half of the measures to protect abortion access. The other is the Department of Education will issue a reminder to universities that they can't discriminate against students on the basis of pregnancy. Which, again, does this is supposedly in response to the University of Idaho telling its employees that staff members can't promote or provide abortions and uh, moving to make the university no longer provide birth control access. But I don't know that telling universities they can't discriminate against pregnant students is going to do anything yeah, the, the for problem, universities deciding they don't want to provide abortion through right. their you know student health insurance or at, at their student clinics That's or right. whatever. So this is just really nothing. No, the, it's nothing. The problem's not at the federal level. The yes. problem is at the state level. And this is the thing. So the, the to yeah, to be fair to Joe Biden in this White House, there is not very much the hands are are somewhat tied, right? Yeah, Since there's the Dodds not much they can do. decision. Uh and so what he what did he do mostly with this time? Uh it was say you got to vote for Democrats. Yeah. But like more than the majorities we actually have right. that you delivered after yes. we asked, more like the uh, supermajority that Obama had in his first term. That's that's what he wishes he had. That he declared when he declined to to uh, you know le- uh, legislatively yeah. enshrine and, and protect have. these rights. Yeah, they could have. They could have. And he promised to. You know, there was a piece in the Washington Post today that was very very disturbing. It's about a 14 year old girl who suffers from rheumatoid arthritis, and she's been on this certain medication for many years. Um, it's the only way that she can lead a normal life, Mm -hmm. right? A pain-free or at least pain-controlled life. Well, uh, her mother went to Walgreens the other day, it says in the article, to have the prescription refilled, and she was denied. Not because insurance denied it, but because the pharmacy denied it, saying, well, your daughter's 14, she's of childbearing age, and there is evidence that if you take an unusually high level a high dosage of this medication that it can induce an abortion this is just horrifying this, this is, is awful this is exactly what people said was going to happen yeah so now this child she ended up getting getting the drug at another pharmacy but this is going to happen more and more and more across the country in states like Arizona and Texas and Florida and Wisconsin and Ohio and all these other states that that passed their trigger laws when Dobbs was finally enacted, not enacted, but decided, and it's going to cause untold misery yeah, for people all across the country. Yeah, it's gross. It's a, We live in a pretty gross country right now. Well, there's a lot of other stuff going there's on. I know that you've stuff. been following this chess. I, I have to say, I when I opened the paper this morning and I saw the latest on this chess scandal, this yeah. is out of control. So, uh, yeah, 72-page report from chess.com. This is wild. And I am not a chess head, but, like, you know, there's a chess there's a chess club that happens in my neighborhood that I've dipped into once in a while. I don't know. I'm not good at playing chess. Um, but, yeah, chess.com 
looked into this American grandmaster who beat Magnus uh, Carlson. Yep. That is his last name, yeah. Uh, the American grandmaster, Hans Niemann. He, it, Niemann has acknowledged cheating in online games when he was young and said, yeah, you know, youthful folly, but I haven't done that ever in an in-person game and I stopped doing it a long time ago. Chess.com is a the major platform for online chess. Um, it investigated... Hans Niemann's behavior issued, a, again, as I said, 72-page report <laughs> and found that uh, Niemann had likely cheated on its site more frequently and at a later age than he publicly acknowledged. So uh, they found that he had, let me see, how many? Yeah, cheated more. on matches. Uh, Niemann had said he cheated when he was 12 and 16. Um, they Chess.com says he likely cheated in more than 100 online games, including some that occurred after he turned 17 and took place in prize money events. Mm. Um, they said they could not turn up uh, an abundance of concrete statistical evidence that Neiman had cheated in his in-person mm-hmm. uh, win over Carlson or other in-person games. But... They said they have found they have found things that look suspicious in that victory uh, and uh, and other uh, in-person now, games that he's that he's played. Wasn't this didn't you tell me that there was like something that would buzz in? His- well, this was speculation. OK, because the question is, how do you cheat? How do you cheat when you're sitting there one on one? Right. And you can't, you know, there. It's, it's not, not like, like you can you interpret the coach's hand signals or right, whatever. Right. You have, and you have to respond to moves being made in real time. So uh, the the way the cheating could be enacted is for someone to be using an AI yes. to find the best possible response to whatever the human opponent's moves are, and somehow communicate that to you. How could you do that non-verbally? Through some kind of vibrate, you know, something they don't know. I I have not seen anything about what the, you know, what the mechanism has been. But this seems like a pretty big deal that uh, chess.com has come out and said, we think he cheated in a bunch of games. Uh, We think he cheated in games that had a, you know, some kind of financial reward. And we think his in-person wins look suspicious. Yeah, I think I think that's right. So. I know that we've got our our guest coming up, but really quickly, I want to say um, there is a serial killer loose in Stockton, California. Um, The last couple of months, somebody has been driving around at all hours of the day and night and just shooting people. Now, most of them tend to be Hispanic men so far, although I think there's one African-American man. Um, Six people have been killed. Two have been shot and wounded. Uh, yesterday, the police in Stockton did not want to use the term serial killer. Mm-hmm. Today, they came out and said, it's a serial killer. Ugh. And the sad part about this is they have literally no clues. They think they may have a CCTV picture of the killer from behind. So it just looks like a guy, six feet tall, maybe 160, 170 pounds, wearing jeans and a hoodie. Yeah. That's it. That's it. So yeah. they're asking the public for help. Best of luck. Yeah. yeah. Is it too soon? It's too soon. Never mind. <laughs> I'll make my pun. I'll make my pun off there. <laughs> well, we have other stories that we want to get to, too. But before that, we're going to go to our first guest, Jeremy Kuzmarov. We have Abiyomi Azikawe on the show today. Chris Hedges, who's always amazing. And um, is it Denise Isaac? Yes. Denise Isaac is going to join us and uh, talk about the weather, yes. which is going to be 
kind of fun. Yeah. She had a good time doing that last time. I, I hope so. Yeah. I had a good time. So stay tuned. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. We'll take our first short break and we'll come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. There are a lot of questions as to what exactly is happening in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. The regions of Donetsk and Luhansk acceded to independent republic status in the Russian Federation, but fighting continues there, and the Ukrainians, by all accounts, are making gains. In the meantime, the Russian government has instituted a call-up of some 300,000 fresh troops causing tens of thousands of Russians to go to Armenia, Georgia, Kazakhstan, and now Kyrgyzstan to avoid the draft. And President Vladimir Putin yesterday warned the United States against deeper involvement in Ukraine, saying that doing so would lead to a direct clash. In other news, Elon Musk, Elon Musk, has earned the ire of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky after the world's richest man conducted a Twitter poll utterly unscientific, of his 107.7 million followers on how to resolve the war. The choices included ceding territory to Russia. Musk also claimed to be in personal touch with President Putin. Well, he didn't actually claim that. We have a report that he's claiming it, um, with whom he was said to be discussing peace options. I wouldn't put money on that. And the U.S. Navy has deployed a new $13 billion aircraft carrier, which was both Commissioned by and condemned by Donald Trump, the ship is the most technologically advanced in the U.S. Navy, but Trump said, quote, it just doesn't look right to me, unquote. We're joined by Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's an author and managing editor of Covert Action magazine, and his latest book is The Russians Are Coming Again. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thanks again for having me. Always great having you, Jeremy. Thanks for joining us. Let's start with the regions that have acceded to Russia. How is it that with the recent vote to join the Russian Federation, the Ukrainian military is making such inroads in the area? Is it that the Russians are distracted a little bit farther south? Is it a shortage of troops? Why do you think this is happening? Uh, well, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, you know, I think that the, the, the region are so, you know, somewhat contested. Uh, they're not universal support for Russia. I mean, those uh, referendums, you know, obviously were problematic, you know, the war context. Uh, uh, there may have been elements of coercion. I mean, I, I, I think the majority of the population in eastern Ukraine wants to be part of Russia. You know, they voted for their autonomy from Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine was trying to impose these language laws uh, mm-hmm. that they rejected. Uh, U- Ukraine has been shelling them for uh, eight years now and torturing them, really, and forcing people to live underground. So, I mean, there, you know, there may be pockets uh, or elements in those societies who distrust the Russians and are more pro-Ukraine. Uh, but I think the majority supports uh, rejoining Russia. And I think, yeah, of course, the weapons and support of the West has enabled this war to, uh, you know, extend. I mean, this war could have ended a long time ago, but stocked with weaponry 
from the West and, and military yeah. support and mercenaries, I think has emboldened Ukraine and allowed them to, uh, you know, take this fight longer uh, and harder than, than many would have expected. Jeremy, we're seeing reports of 10,000 Russians a day uh, fleeing to neighboring countries to avoid the call-up. What do you think this means for the Russian military? Will they be able, will the Russians be able to fulfill uh, the call-up? They need these fresh troops. Well, it's hard to know the number. I mean, they're going to be, you know, the, in the American Civil War, there are a lot of people who resisted oh, yeah. the draft into the Union Army, and there were even draft riots. Uh, so, I mean, it's not uncommon for any country, uh, to have some, uh, opposition, uh, and, and, you know, some elements who don't go along with the war or, or don't, don't want to join the military. Uh, I mean, I think the Russian military is still, you know, fairly strong, uh, and they've, you know, built a, a considerably, uh, powerful military apparatus. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if how this will affect them and their ability to carry out the war. I mean, with these referendums, in a way, it is a success for Russian policy. They're incorporating more territory into Russia, uh, and over time, they may feel like they uh, can drain the Ukrainian resistance, uh, particularly if the West, at some point, the West might uh, tire, you know, Western public might tire of giving all that money to the Ukrainians. The Russians may be banking on that, and that the Ukrainian resistance will eventually uh, retreat. So in the long haul, this may not be very significant. The numbers, I, I don't know how hot, you know, what percentage. Yeah, there are a lot, but the percentage may still be relatively low. There's still a lot of Russians uh, in the military and willing to join the military because uh, many Russians see this as a justified fight based on the security interests of Russia and based on the aggression of the Western powers and NATO uh, and Ukrainian aggression into eastern Ukraine. So, uh, you know, Putin's popularity has only increased since the war started, and I think many Russians do support this, this war. And, you know, they're not a warmongering people, but they see this war as war, more a defensive war and war for self-defense. So there's enough support to sustain it in Russia for the time being, I think. I'm curious, too, about what it means for Russian relations with these neighboring countries. Russia has good relations with Armenia and with Georgia. Russians don't require visas to go to those countries. Um, Moscow has has decent relations with Kazakhstan. How do you think those relations will be affected by these people crossing the border? Uh, I don't think they'll be affected that much. I mean, I think these countries, you know, I think uh, Russia is trying to form more of a you know, Eurasian bloc. Uh, to counter the West, and there, you know, there's some coercion, but I think there's a lot of uh, support uh, for that concept, and, and a lot of neighboring countries see benefit in lying with Russia. Uh, so that's not going to change. I mean, it may have some, you know, cause some domestic instability, but uh, on the other hand, they may be able to contribute to the economy of those countries if they settle there. So I don't see it necessarily uh, that significant a larger geopolitical sense. You know. Even after I wrote that question, I, I thought about the number of Americans who crossed into Canada to avoid uh, the draft during the Vietnam War. And uh, the Canadians, of course, gave them, uh, gave them jobs and, uh, and uh, housing, and, and it didn't affect relations between Canada and the United States, not in the greater scheme of things. And then Jimmy Carter pardoned everybody, and the ones that wanted to return to the United States did, and the ones that didn't remained in Canada. So I, th I think Jeremy's right here. I think that, uh, that there are bigger fish to fry than, than people crossing the border temporarily.
Uh, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dimitro Kuleba, is traveling in Africa this week and next week. It's a 10-day trip, beginning in Senegal. This comes two months after a similar trip to the region by uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister. What do you think uh, Kuleba should expect to accomplish on this trip, if anything? Well, I think, you know, the Russians, uh, you know, uh, African countries are very divided about this conflict, and many either support the Russian position or are against, you know, NATO, because, I mean, African countries have experienced a long history of Western colonialism and aggression, and they've seen the expansion of AFRICOM uh, on their own turf. Uh, which is kind of uh, you know tied with the U.S. and, and NATO in a way. So you know they 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 know what Western imperialism is, and and there's a, di- a different relationship with Africa. You know, many African countries during the Cold War had very positive relations with mm-hmm. the Soviet Union, which supported the anti-apartheid movement, the ANC in South Africa, uh, and supported other liberation movements on the continent. So uh, the Africans have a different worldview from, from here, a view of the conflict. So many African countries have not supported uh, Ukraine. So I think the Ukrainian minister is trying to drum up some support uh, for his war effort against Russia, but it's kind of an uphill climb again, because, you know, I mean, there are some African states that are kind of totally beholden to the West and are basically puppets and uh, traitors to their own people. Those kind of governments will support Ukraine and, and the Western cause, but, uh, the more independent African governments will not either will directly support Russia or will take an ambivalent stance. You know, I, I'll add to that, too. First of all, I think you're right. Um, and secondly, the Russians historically have had good and respectful foreign relations uh, with African countries going back really to the to the 50s. Uh, I remember an African diplomat telling me one time that the Americans go to Africa and they promise democracy. Uh, the Russians go to Africa and they promise food. And I think this is the first time a Ukrainian foreign minister has, has visited ever, Africa I think you're exactly all. right. Yeah. Yep. Which, you know, makes the incline a little bit steeper, I think. I think you're right. Yeah. Jeremy, uh, the European Union announced that it had agreed on new economic sanctions against Russia, including energy sanctions. Uh, but at the same time, the Germans, the French, and the Belgians also said today that they would begin mining coal again, something that they had stopped doing for environmental reasons. Coal is, at best, a short-term fix for Europe, and it seems to me that what they're trying to do is just get through the winter. Uh, But what do you think that these new sanctions mean, and where is Europe going to go to get its energy? Well, yeah, and you can also think about the uh, sabotage of the uh, Nord Stream Uh, Yeah, in fact, I was going to ask you about that next, right? Yeah, I mean, this is basically, yeah, this is, you know, going to have a huge effect on Europe, and they're kind of scrambling uh, to make up for it. And I mean, many, uh, I mean, there's evidence to indicate the United States or some of its allies were behind that sabotage. Uh, and I mean, their motive is pure economic. They want American natural gas suppliers, uh, you know, to fill in. They don't want Russia supplying, uh, Germany and Europe with gas. They want American companies. So they're using kind of gangster methods, including with the sanction, they're trying to freeze out Russia in that way. Uh, and it's just part of like an economic war on the entire world, basically, uh, by the U.S. government, you know, trying to fortify U.S. 
corporation, you know, U.S. natural gas and oil oil industry, which is a pattern we've seen before. And yeah, I mean, the U.S. natural gas industry, I think, is has been booming you know, with fracking, and uh, the U.S. became more energy independent. So they hoped that they could make a killing with Russia kind of muscled out. Uh, but, I mean, that's not necessarily very good for the European countries. Mm-hmm. The cost will be a lot higher. And I don't know if they can match the supply, you know, the demand. Uh, so, and then there are, I think, other, you know, countries like Middle East they may turn to. But, again, it's going to raise costs. And, yeah. and, you know, it's bearing a ser- serious economic consequences for Europe. And I think a lot of Europeans are starting to really question uh, their government's policies, you know, their their government's kind of fealty to the U.S. Uh, and also the government's policy vis-a-vis Russia, who they could benefit from, from trade with. I know that you're not um, an energy specialist, but one of the things that I just haven't been able to find an answer to is, you know, the United States is sitting on a, an ocean of frackable oil. Uh, I'm glad that we're not fracking it. I think it's terrible for the environment. I think it poisons our our water table. But if we were to frack, uh, fracking is cost effective when oil is over sixty dollars a barrel. Right now, it's about ninety dollars a barrel, down from one hundred and twenty. Why is it that the United States is not fracking and exporting that oil, or even fracking and using the oil for for domestic consumption? Why Why do you think that decision's been made? Well, I think it's political, uh, you know, and that's a you know big battleground right. in U.S. politics between the red and blue states and Republican and Democrats. I mean, you know, I live in the state of Oklahoma, so uh, right. you know, oil I think central, and, and yeah, and in Tulsa, the the last mayor allowed fracking even within the city proper, and wow. I mean, here the government is really favors the oil industry. I mean, they refuse even to tax, uh, uh, raise the taxes by like one or two cents. Uh, they, they tax only the Indian tribes, and that, that pissed them off. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the red states, they're all in favor of that. But, you know, that's one reason they hate Biden so much. They feel that the Democrats are constraining uh, their business uh, and economic opportunities. So, I mean, if the Republicans take over, you'll see a strategy of, of promoting fracking at the national level, uh, and that will please the oil and gas suppliers. And then the environmentalists, you know, who back the Democratic Party will be up in arms. And it's, it's a constant battle in U.S. politics. But, the, I mean, the Biden administration, I think they quietly, like what I, I saw and I, I investigated the Obama administration is rhetorically they kind of said they were on the side of the environmentalists, but very quietly. Like, I think Obama supported, like, record fracking levels in his administration. So, oh, yeah. quietly, I think the Democrats support it, too. It's just... They want to have this image that they're not on oh, the yeah. side of the oil companies. You, uh, you've hit that on so the head. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, they're the, the the industry is 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 big and it's flourishing and and this is creating this world situation now is creating huge opportunities and they see an opportunity for the killing and they're going to you know try and retake the Congress uh, in November and and really push that forward. And if the Republicans could take the presidency as well, push it on like turbo speed. Yeah, turbo speed is right. To make matters worse, OPEC Plus just an hour or two ago announced in Vienna that it would cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day. Everybody had expected a cut of 1 million barrels a day. Well, right. The panel recommended that they, they do yeah, that. So, they, we're, you know, right. whether they're going to do it or not, I guess we'll see. Well, this this is double what we had expected, and and it could be enough to push 
Europe and the United States deeper into recession, but OPEC plus was already operating at 3.6 million barrels per day, less than what their allowances were. So this could be a paperwork exercise. Now, even if it is a paperwork exercise, public opinion is such that it's probably going to push gas prices higher. Uh, What do you think this means for Europe this winter, Jeremy, and for relations between the U.S. and OPEC plus members, especially countries like Saudi Arabia, um, Iraq, Kuwait, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates? Well, as as we discussed, uh, your show has covered a lot. I mean, there's really kind of dire situation in Europe, uh, and there's a lot of uh, insecurity among many people and families uh, whether they're going to be able to heat their homes, uh, and you know, governments are scrambling for alternatives. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think again, this may be the moment, you know, a tipping point where I mean, you know, over the last generation, Europe has kind of been within the U.S. orbit and, uh, you know, kind of acquiesced to U.S. dominance. But I think you're, a lot of Europeans are really waking up more and more that it's not in their interest, that they need their governments to be more independent and to pursue their country's own interests. Uh, so and I think this may be a tipping point as far as U.S.-European uh, relations and a kind of backlash against American power might, might start to be developing. And we're already seeing it, although it's emboldening more of the far-right uh, type leaders, like in Italy, uh, rather than the left-wing uh, leader. Because I think the, the left-wing movements kind of, you know, slowly, uh, you know, integrate with the with the political center and the kind of status quo. So the more radical movements now are more on the on the right. Uh, so I, I think that's what we're seeing playing out in Europe. Uh, as far as the Middle East, uh, I'd have to think more about that. That's kind of complex. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, Saudi Arabia is is kind of emerging as a big player. It seems these days. Yeah. Uh, they seem, uh, you know, to be trying to seize the moment. Uh, and you know, they may be moving away from the U.S. orbit as well. Uh, uh, and they're t- tinkering with with different alliances. It looks like. I want to say, Jeremy, I thought it was interesting. I mean, obviously, this move was announced this morning on NPR's morning podcast. And uh, the interviewer there said, d- declared, you know, she's saying, why, why would this happen? Uh, or, you know, what's going on here? And then declared that uh, a, a move like this only benefits Russia. Russia is the only country that's going to benefit if OPEC plus cuts production. Yeah, it was just weird. Like, you know, when you talk about the European relationship with the Middle East, the American relationship with the Middle East, like, obviously, sure, Russia will benefit from this. So will all the countries that are selling oil, you know, they will through various, you know, yeah, there will be less oil on the market. They'll earn more money for it. If they're doing what Saudi Arabia is doing, which is buying Russian oil cheap and selling their oil dear, you know, they're all going to benefit. And I think that it is interesting the way this is being presented as though, you know, if you if you take that NPR presentation on face value, uh, then what you would see is uh, Russia pushing these countries around, forcing them to do something that only benefits Russia and not them. And it's simply not the case. You know, it like the the this recommendation that I think people are assuming is likely to be something close to the reality when the decision is made in a couple of weeks, uh, is going to reflect not only on uh, what Russia is attempting to do economically and geopolitically, but what these Middle Eastern countries are attempting to do and on their geopolitical relationships. And I, I just think it's 
uh, was wild to me that you could pretend that like Saudi Arabia in particular is not, it, it, you know, isn't going to be making money hand over fist with this move as well. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you. You know, it, it takes away the agency of these countries, uh, of which they have plenty, and they're often very, you know, shrewd operators uh, advancing their own interest and, and wealth. And yeah, it's part of this Russophobia that we've seen repeatedly over uh, years, if not decades. And actually, yeah, I read a good book that uh, shows it goes back centuries where Russia is made out to be this terrible, evil force, you know, a dark, uh, backward place. And this is what justifies, you know, Western empires from the British Empire up to the current uh, American Empire uh, and the huge military budgets and outlays uh, that we see going toward Ukraine and new Cold War. So this is just one more example where yeah, Russia is always said to be strong arming, but it's Middle East or even Africa. You know, there have been a lot of lurid stories about Russia allegedly trying to kind of manipulate African countries and expand its reach. And relating, you know, relates to what we were discussing earlier. That actually, if you go back historically, uh, Russia had very cordial, you know, for for a large power compared to Western uh, countries, uh, there was much more, you know, cordial relation with African country, respectful relations, and Af uh, Russia was actually supporting more progressive forces like the anti-apartheid forces or uh, socialist forces that were uh, against. Um, Western, uh, you know, colonizers. So, and, and also, they, they provide yeah, food. So, and also but, undoubtedly know, uh, if, uh, looking out for its own interests, right? Looking out for oh, its yeah. own national interests, getting its own benefit oh, yeah, in that yeah. trade. It's just, yeah. you know, Certainly, Russia's national yeah. interests are always presented as uh, uh, purely sowing chaos for philosophical delight. And the U.S. national interests are always uh, helping everyone in the world live better lives. And just neither of those are ever true. Absolutely, yeah, and it obscured what the U.S. is doing, you know, uh, to strong-arm countries. And there are plenty of examples, whether in the Middle East or Africa, where the U.S. is is much more than the Russians trying to strong-arm or you know blackmail countries or you know invade them. Uh, so, but Russia is presented as the bad guy, just like you know Hollywood movie. Let me ask you real quickly too, what you make of this uh, this situation where Elon Musk is inserting himself in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. It seems nonsensical to me, and frankly, I don't believe that Musk is in touch with uh, Putin. Is this a nothing burger, or is there something behind it? Did you see this tweet, Jeremy? Did you see this tweet by the NPR <laughs> former Moscow correspondent, now correspondent in Ukraine, suggesting that? Elon Musk and Vladimir Putin are in direct contact and Elon Musk is uh, using Twitter surveys to present Vladimir Putin's negotiation proposals to the world. Uh, I mean, the idea that you could even cr share this credibly uh, <laughs> just, I don't know, speaks speaks something about the way uh, this this conflict is being reported. Absolutely, yeah. And, and one uh, thought I have, though, is that it may be a nothing burger, but it does reflect a, a, a deep disillusionment among the American public with their leader and their failure uh, to carry out effective diplomacy, and that you need somebody like an Elon Musk to step up, you know, who has a stature because of his wealth. Uh, and, I mean, I think that does reflect popular will that the public wants an end to this conflict and the lead, government leaders are just utterly failing and in fact preventing diplomacy. So an Elon Musk has to step up and try and do something. And I think that's what the public wants, uh, whether he's qualified to do it or not is something else, but 
it does reflect, I think, popular desire and the failure of the government at diplomacy and the failure of a democracy deficit. Our U.S. government is not representing what the American people want, which is to provoke more conflicts. I think both the Russian and American people are not warmongers themselves. They want solutions, diplomatic solutions, but the government are the ones who fail them. We will leave it there. That was Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's an author and managing editor of Covert Action Magazine. Check that out. And his latest book is The Russians Are Coming Again. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we are going to take a look now at the latest developments in Ethiopia, where uh, there could be prospects for negotiations happening this weekend. There are also some warnings that, uh, you know, under the cover of a media blackout, this is going to uh, shift to a regional war and, and you know, possibly to uh, Africa's great war, uh, as some people are warning. We're also going to talk about what's happening in Burkina Faso as it experiences its second military coup in just a year. Joining us for these conversations is Abayomi Azikiwe. He's editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Abayomi, thanks for Thank joining us Thank you so much again. for inviting me. So the last time we spoke, uh, we were talking about reports of an Eritrean mobilization, you know, Western reports of this mobilization, and a large-scale offensive by both Eritrean forces and the Ethiopian government forces against the separatist Tigray People's Liberation Front. Um, Today, I see the TPLF has said it was withdrawing from parts of Ethiopia's Amhara region uh, to its south to manage what it says is an invasion from the north. The TPLF claims to have inflicted huge losses on the Ethiopian government side. Uh, also, as of today, uh, there might be a reason to hope for a resumption of peace talks over the weekend. So let's start with just an update on what has happened in the conflict over the past month, and, and then we'll get to these peace talks. Well, as you mentioned, uh, there has been uh, reports uh, that uh, the Eritrean uh, Defense Forces were mobilizing uh, heavily on the border uh, with the uh, Tigray uh, province in uh, northern Ethiopia. Uh, then at the same time, which we've been hearing for the last several months, uh, the uh, TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, is saying that they're willing to negotiate a settlement uh, with the Ethiopian government. Uh, however, from the other side, uh, the Ethiopian uh, government is saying that uh, the TPLF rebels are still launching attacks against its forces, uh, not only in Tigray, but also in areas uh, in Wolo province, uh, which is uh, largely occupied by people from the Amhara uh, group. So there's conflicting reports around this. And of course, uh, the most recent uh, being that uh, there's some agreement uh, on the part of the TPLF and the uh, central government to meet. Uh, in uh, South Africa to continue the discussions under the uh, mediation of the uh, African Union. 
Yeah. Do you think that I had heard that the Ethiopian president has said he will go? Uh, I see. It seems like you're saying the TPLF has also agreed, which would make these the highest level uh, negotiations that have happened yet in this conflict. Uh, the TPLF says at a lower level, authorities have met a few times for talks organized by the United States, but that it has been betrayed in these discussions. Uh, and I also know that the you know, the TPLF seems to have been pushing for American involvement in these negotiations. Uh, the Ethiopian government, I think, has has wanted the process to be led by the African Union. So if the TPLF uh, agrees to go, and these are actually the, the leaders, you know, the president of the Ethiopia and the leader of the TPLF meeting, you know, maybe this is serious enough that uh, we, we could see uh, another ceasefire at least. Yes, hopefully so. Uh, but uh, they have not held up. Uh, this started uh, nearly two years ago in November of 2020, and uh, the uh, Ethiopian National Defense Forces were withdrawn uh, from uh, the Tigray area in uh, 2021, and then the fighting resumed again. Uh, there was another uh, major battle, and of course, uh, they uh, withdrew, pulled back their forces again. Uh, so it's very difficult to tell. Um, you know, the TPLF will say one thing. And then later on, uh, they will reverse their position. They have said uh, on numerous occasions that they were in favor of a uh, ceasefire, that they wanted to reach a negotiated settlement. Uh, yet, uh, according to other sources uh, from Ethiopian government and uh, some some uh, information from the Eritrean government, that that is not the case, that they're still involved in uh, offensive uh, military operations against Ethiopia as well as Eritrea. Let me ask you also, uh, the UK Telegraph this week published a story uh, decrying what it called a media blackout about this war uh, and warning that what experts are calling the deadliest war in the world is on its way to becoming the new great war of Africa. And I wonder what you think about the potential for this conflict to spread further in the region or even, uh, you know, engulfing some outside the region, right? A, a significant portion of the continent. Uh, do you think that do you think that this there is that possibility? And, and then what impact would that have on countries, you know, beyond Ethiopia and Eritrea? I don't see that happening uh, in the short term. Uh, hopefully it will not happen. Uh, there are tensions, mm -hmm. of course, between Ethiopia and Egypt over uh, the great uh, Ethiopian Renaissance Dam project um, that has still not been completely resolved. Uh, there's also tension uh, between uh, the military government in Sudan and the Ethiopian government. Uh, over a land dispute, and also over the role of uh, refugees uh, who have fled the fighting in the northern part of the country between the TPLF and the Ethiopian government. Uh, beyond that, um, I don't see other countries getting involved uh, at this stage. Uh, perhaps uh, the United States uh, has been said as supporting the TPLF, at least politically, they are, and they could be uh, militarily as well. I mean, the fact that they wanted the United States involved in the mediation is a clear indication uh, that uh, they do have some uh, contact and possibly support uh, from uh, the Biden administration. There was a letter uh, that was uh, sent uh, by the African Union Special Envoy, uh, who is the former uh, president of the Federal Republic of Nigeria, that's Olusegun Abasanjo, and uh, he had the support of uh, the former uh, president Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya, and the former uh, Deputy President uh, Pumzile Mlamo Nguka of South Africa. Uh, so I think the AU is definitely serious about getting these talks underway. 
I believe the Ethiopian government is serious about getting these talks underway. It's just, I think the TPLF is the only um, uh, unexplained uh, uh, force uh, in this whole conflict. Do they actually want peace or do they want to keep this conflict going uh, for the benefit of destabilizing uh, Ethiopia? And what do you think of the way the media has handled this war? Uh, do you think it is being undercovered? And do you think it's being undercovered for reasons other than, you know, that the West is just generally disinterested in conflicts that aren't happening in Europe? I think they are very much interested in what's going on in Ethiopia. Uh, the um, United Nations um, uh, representative ambassador for the United States, uh, Greenfield, has made threats. Uh, to the Ethiopian government. Uh, they have uh, been in the process of developing legislation. This is in the U.S. Congress, which drew huge demonstrations in Washington, D.C. and other cities uh, by uh, Ethiopian nationals who are U.S. citizens and Eritrean nationals who are U.S. citizens uh, against uh, the sanctioned legislation against Ethiopia. Uh, if you read the Ethiopian state media, uh, it's very critical of U.S. foreign policy in the Horn of Africa. So uh, the U.S. is very much involved in this. They're just not uh, putting on the front burner in regard to the corporate media uh, in this country. Um, their preoccupation, of course, is with uh, Ukraine. And um, this perhaps would be a, a, a diversion uh, from that. But they, they are very much engaged. Mm hmm. Uh, let's also, while we have you, I want to ask about Burkina Faso. Uh, this weekend, the country experienced its second military coup in a year with former leader, Lieutenant Colonel Paul-Henri Sendago Damiba being ousted in favor of Captain Ibrahim Traore. And uh, Traore say, uh, his supporters say that Damiba was forced to resign because he had failed in his mission to secure the country from terrorist violence. Um, but there are some interesting uh, geopolitical overtones here uh, and echoes of what just uh, occurred in Mali. Damiba is accused of being too close to former colonial power France. And there are those in Traore's camp who are reportedly urging the leader to shift from France as a counterterrorism partner to Russia. And so, you know, I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about that change in leadership and, and what it might mean in a larger sense. This is a very interesting development, uh, what happened on Friday. Uh, the fact that uh, the former leader, Damiba, uh, was overthrown. He had just returned uh, from the United States to address the uh, United mm. Nations General Assembly, the 77th session that was held uh, last month. And uh, he was overthrown. Uh, the reasoning behind his removal is that he was too close to France and that uh, there's a lot of anti-French sentiment inside Burkina Faso and other countries in West Africa. Now, we saw on Saturday uh, the uh, new head of state, Captain Ibrahim Traore, had made a statement publicly uh, that Damiba uh, was being sheltered and protected uh, by the French military forces, which uh, are still in uh, Burkina Faso, in preparation of some type of uh, counter coup uh, to reinstall him in power. Uh, he made that statement, and um, it appears as if thousands of people came out into the streets uh, and um, protested at the French embassy. Uh, they stoned the embassy, and it was torched. It was burned uh, to the yeah. ground. Now, yeah. it's quite interesting. This happened, and there was almost no news about this uh, within the U.S. media. Uh, it was some coverage I noticed on the BBC, but it was quite striking. Uh, that it appeared as if it was not covered at all by the United States. And this is a major uh, incident, because uh, the U.S. has embassies all over Africa. They have 
the United States Africa Command, uh, which, uh, of course, works in conjunction with U.S. diplomatic personnel in Africa. Uh, for them to cover this up uh, is really an amazing uh, phenomenon. But um, the uh, former leader, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henri Sadiogo Damiba, formally resigned on Sunday. And uh, there's rumors that he may be in Togo, which is a neighboring country, also a former French colony. Uh, but um, yes, the French uh, denied that they were uh, planning any type of uh, counter coup against uh, Traore, uh, but they did attack uh, the embassy. They also attacked uh, uh, a French institute uh, in the second largest uh, city in Burkina Faso. This anti-French sentiment is really astonishing. Uh, these are countries that were colonized by mm -hmm. France, who had close relations uh, with Paris, and now They've gone as far, even in Mali, uh, the uh, interim prime minister, uh, Maiga, in his speech before the United Nations General Assembly last month, actually accused France of funding terrorist groups inside of Mali uh, that have been attacking uh, the uh, Malian uh, uh, governmental installations, the military uh, outlets, and also uh, civilians in mm -hmm. Mali in the north and central part of the country. That is remarkable that he would make that statement publicly before the United Nations General Assembly that, the, that, that, that France was actually behind uh, the, some of the rebels that were fighting yeah. against uh, the Malian government. If that is correct, uh, then this is a very, very vicious uh, foreign policy game that's being played by France. Similar accusations have also been made about the United States, that they do support uh, groups that are allied with al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, that are causing problems in uh, various parts of Africa, in uh, West Asia, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, it, it, the U.S. does that in the Middle East, you know, so are they doing the same thing in Africa? Yeah. Who knows? Um, I also wanted to ask about uh, the the tour by the Ukrainian foreign minister of Africa. He's, he's begun a 10-day tour. Uh, he is attempting to better explain Ukraine to his counterparts on the continent and to make his case that Ukraine needs and deserves more explicit support from African nations. Uh, how do you think that message is being received so far? I don't think it's going to be received well by most governments. Uh, perhaps some governments will give him an audience. Uh, but it's interesting in Burkina Faso over the weekend, when the French embassy and other installations were being attacked, people were uh, carrying Burkinabi flags as well as Russian flags. And these were not isolated incidents. Mm -hmm. yeah. And people were actually calling for Russian intervention in Burkina Faso to assist with the security situation. Uh, so this is on a grassroots level. These are mainly young people uh, that are pushing this position. Uh, so I think it's, it would be very dangerous uh, for uh, some of these countries to shift their position in favor of uh, Ukraine and NATO uh, in regard to the uh, current situation in Eastern Europe. I mean, yeah, if, if the switch is going to be from France as a as a partner in counterterrorism to Russia, yeah, that would seem to undercut any ability Ukraine might have of, of winning uh, support yeah, to and, their and side. And it's the African countries, uh, countries in Europe that are suffering as a result of this war. Uh, energy prices are skyrocketing in Europe, and there's, there's starting to be demonstrations now, even in the United Kingdom and other European uh, countries on the European continent, against the rise in energy prices and in fuel prices. And of course, we had the uh, sabotage of the uh, Nord Stream uh, pipeline, which they're trying to blame on Russia. But why would Russia have to blow up a pipeline when they could just turn off the valve? Uh, you know, it makes no sense yeah. uh, in terms of the propaganda 
uh, that's being uh, pushed here in the United States. So it's a very uh, volatile situation that's going on right now. There was a decision announced today by OPEC and the Russian Federation to cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day. This is going to send shockwaves uh, throughout the uh, international markets because that means gasoline prices, which are already going up, are going to go up further. Uh, heating prices are going to go up further. Food prices are going to go up uh, even more. Uh, so I think we're in for a very difficult winter. Yeah, I, I think we're in for a very difficult. I don't even know if I would put an end yeah. on it. It seems like we are heading into very turbulent times. Uh, Abayomi Ezekwe, your editor of the Pan African Newswire, always appreciate your commentary. Thank Thanks you for so joining much us for today. For the invitation, as, as always. We'll check back in with you again soon, I'm sure. We are going to take a quick break here in a second and come back to talk a little bit about the Oath Keepers on trial. We are going to talk about uh, Rolling Stone. Yeah, what the heck are they Really, uh, you know, just going after Roger Waters in, in a recent piece. Uh, we are also going to talk about whether or not we should interpret some of the language coming out of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's uh, travel in Latin America right now as an indication that his party is about to switch their orientation on immigration to some degree. I find this I find this language a little bit concerning. Yeah, uh, we'll get into all of that in just a sec here. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. Before we get to our next guest, I wanted to ask Michelle a question, actually. What? Yeah, one of the things that I that I wanted to raise with Jeremy Kuzmarov, and we ran out of time, was um, was about uh, Kyrgyzstan. I know that you've, you've been to Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan. But uh, there was a piece in the New York Times today saying that. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Kyrgyzstan is a source of cheap labor for um, the Russian labor market, and um, they've got great food. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a place that Russians go to go on vacation or to look for work. The reverse is true. Yes. Well, now. Well, maybe vacation. Yeah. It does have beautiful mountains. There's mountains and skiing and hiking. If you're, you know, if you're an outdoors person. Well, it's, I don't think it's a, you know, no country in Central Asia has a really developed mm-hmm. tourism sector, mm-hmm. but especially if you, you know, if if you're a Russian speaker, right, uh, it, it's easier to get around. Mm-hmm. And it does have beautiful mountains. It has, uh, you know, it has skiing. It has beautiful lakes. You know, so there are destinations. There are regional destinations in, in Kyrgyzstan that you might go to. What about the, the labor situation? It said that 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 Kyrgyzstan is a country that supplies labor to yeah. Russia and to other places. Um, and now Russians are going there, not in gigantic numbers, mm-hmm. but there are, you know, several thousand a day, apparently that mm-hmm. are going to Kyrgyzstan I mean, to there's a lot, avoid a, the draft, a, I guess. A, ch- a chunk of a lot of Central Asian economies uh, come from remittances yeah. sent back from Russia. I think, I think Tajikistan is the one, I think something like, I'm going to pull this off the top of my head, but some enormous amount of its economy comes from uh, remittances. That's not necessarily the case with Kyrgyzstan, but certainly there are lots of, you know, Central Asian workers 
uh, it's not they go to Russia to work to earn a little bit more money than they could at home and send that back to their families. It's not unusual. You know, the certainly yeah. uh, I think in Kyrgyzstan, Russian is spoken slightly less than in um in Kazakhstan, for sure, and maybe in some other places, but it's still pretty widely spoken. There's not much of a language barrier. You don't have to speak Kyrgyz, except in the countryside, really, to to get around. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, and there are a lot of things that make travel and trade easy. If a Russian were going to go to Kyrgyzstan and stay there for a length of time, a year, two, five years, whatever, well, what would a Russian do there to make a living? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I wonder really if there is anything for a Russian to do there. I'm not sure. I mean, Kyrgyzstan makes its money on it's, you know, it has some metals, right? It has some gold. Right, uh, it right. doesn't have the same subsoil resources that some of its neighbors do. So it has some, you know, there's some like Canadian and other foreign gold mining operations there. Um, and, you know, that's it really, it'd be great if it could uh, develop its tourism sector and yeah. sector because it is really beautiful. But I don't know. I'm like, you know, I would imagine maybe you're looking at jobs in universities or something, you know, some kind of sort of professional service area, but I'm not sure. And I don't think that I don't, you know, Kyrgyzstan does not have a a labor market that's going to be able to absorb a a ton of surplus labor. Uh, But also, you know, I don't know the numbers really that we were talking about or the length of time. I'm not sure that this this is a situation where you're really looking at long term emigration to Kyrgyzstan. Months, you know, it could be a short term uh, prospect. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I've never been there. I've always wanted to go. I tried go. to go. It's really pretty. It's really yeah. pretty. It's yeah, really I'd nice. Like to check it's it very, out. It's a cool place. Yeah. Yeah. I'd yeah. like to check it out. I, I don't know if we have our next guest. Do, do we, we have do. our We do? Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, that that's exciting, actually. Today is day three of the Oath Keepers trial here in federal court in Washington. And day two was full of revelations, including the fact that the FBI had infiltrated the group to the point where it was able to record with video and audio Oath Keepers planning meetings for violence on January 6th. None of us should be surprised by the FBI's work. They've been infiltrating groups around the country for the past 65 or 70 years. Rolling Stone has a hit piece in its current issue on Roger Waters, the legendary co-founder of the group Pink Floyd and a noted activist for Julian Assange and for the Palestinian people and other issues. This article or interview is so one-sided as to not be journalism, but Roger Waters is not backing down. And Secretary of State Tony Blinken is in South America to speak with regional leaders about slowing migration to the United States. Are the United States and its Democratic administration then planning to close the borders or to slow crossing of the borders in advance of the midterm elections? We're going to talk about that with our next guest. We are happy to be joined by the great author and journalist Chris Hedges. Chris is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who is a former Middle East bureau chief for The New York Times. He's also written for Sheer Post and Truth Dig, and his work now appears on Substack. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you. Good to have you. Uh, Let's start with the Oath Keepers trial, Chris. Uh, There are so many lessons to be learned here, it seems to me. In testimony yesterday, an FBI agent revealed that the FBI has both video and audio of an Oath Keepers meeting in an Arlington, Virginia hotel on January 6, 2021, in which they're planning for violence and for the potential use of weapons. Stating the obvious, the FBI had infiltrated this group and they knew all about its planning. So my question is, Have we learned nothing from the past half century of revelations about the FBI? Does the past not inform the present? 
We've all heard stories of meetings of the American Communist Party in the 60s, where every single attendee at the meeting was either an FBI agent or an FBI informant. We know the same thing about the Black Liberation Groups, about anti-Vietnam War groups. Even our friends at Code Pink have been targeted by the FBI. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, that's, remember when Malcolm X was killed in the Audubon Ballroom, uh, his bodyguard was, in fact, uh, working undercover for the FBI, and there were an estimated nine FBI informants uh, in the room when he was assassinated. Uh, and, of course, police presence was non-existent. So they knew what was coming out of the Farrakhan's mosque in Newark, and they let it happen. And then, and, and the person who allegedly carried out the murder was never uh, investigated, arrested, or charged. So that's how they work. Uh, and you look at the terrorism cases since 9-11, uh, it's always these kind of dead-end Somali kids who yeah. uh, suddenly are given the bright idea that they want to blow, blow up the Pentagon or something, and, and then given the money, and in many cases the uh, actual promise, the kind of materials to do it, and then they're swept up, and that keeps them in business. Uh, I think we, we've seen, at least among liberals, a kind of uh, loss of historical understanding uh, and willful naivete because, of course, they uh, embraced the FBI as the primary instrument that was going to bring down through Mueller Donald Trump. Um, But, yeah, that's that's how they work. I mean, even that uh, plan to kidnap the governor. Whitmer. uh, Yeah, was completely riddled with (laughs) uh, law enforcement figures on the inside. Um, So no, it's not a surprise. uh, And it's not just that they monitor, but they often act as provocateurs because uh, by uh, ratcheting up the threats, uh, it it justifies their massive budgets and massive reach. So there's a kind of quid pro quo there. I would bet my next paycheck that the Oath Keepers on trial right now are going to be found guilty and are going to do some serious prison time. But what do the FBI's actions say about other groups, about peaceful groups? What's to keep the FBI from concocting cases, as you mentioned a second ago, uh, against peace groups or groups that support Palestinian rights, for example? Is it even possible to protect ourselves from the FBI? Well, so what happened right after 9-11 at at Israel's behest, all of the major Palestinian groups and Palestinian leaders, Holy Land Foundation, uh, Samuel Aryan, uh, Fahad Ashmi, and others, this was an Israeli list, were swept up and charged under terrorism laws. None of them had uh, embraced or advocated violence, much less carried out violence. Uh, So, uh, no, that's, that's... and that, there's been a long uh, history of that. Uh, when I uh, was uh, sued Barack Obama over Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act, this was a section that overturned the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act that prohibits the U.S. military from functioning as a domestic police force. In the trial, my lawyers used the revelations provided by Jeremy Hammond when he hacked into Strat, Strat for private security, yeah, private security firm, and there were there was back and forth between these officials and Homeland Security 
about trying to uh, tie nonviolent radical groups to terrorism laws by searching radical websites and seeing if any of the websites had picked up any of the statements or articles or materials. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was a, a very uh, revealing moment in uh, a very, uh, uh, you know, a very obvious or concerted effort to search for ways to uh, brand nonviolent radical groups as terrorist groups. And, and that, that is long been, uh, you know, why the FBI sort of go back to the 1930s and uh, the uh, Red Scare of the 50s, and that's nothing new. Why do you think so few Americans are able to learn from the lessons of the past here? It's certainly never been a secret that the FBI spies on and infiltrates groups all across the political spectrum. Why do we just not assume that's going to happen? Why do we not prepare for it to happen? Because of the press. Because the the press is is a handmaiden of uh, the security and state. You can see that now with uh, the war in Ukraine, you saw it with the war in Iraq. I mean, who are the quote-unquote experts? They're recruited from the intelligence community and the military-industrial complex, many, most of whom, in fact, have vested interests in perpetuating conflict because they make money on it or from these conflicts by sitting on the boards of Raytheon and everything else. Right. So in order that that history is available, if you read... Uh, Alan Trecker, Howard Zinn, I mean, there are lots of, uh, Trecker did some nice work on this. Um, it's there, it's in the historical record, uh, but it's not part of the dominant cultural narrative, and I think most people are passive consumers of information. That's the first part. The second part is that uh, the majority of the public is not involved in these acts of resistance and these types of groups, which of course are well aware, as you point out, of this kind of infiltration and uh, the functioning is out on provocateurs within these by the FBI. Um, so, but I, I blame the media and there's a kind of deterioration in the quality of the media, which was the commercial media, which I come out of. I work for the New York times. It's uh, it, by Fred and uh, Sidney Shanberg, uh, who was pushed out of the times uh, once said that, uh, you know, when we work for the times, we may not have made things better, Maybe we help, we kept things from getting worse. Um, there are serious constraints uh, within these organizations, uh, and and that means that that for the most part they dance to the tune that the dominant power structure plays. I, I have to ask you about Roger Waters and this Rolling Stone interview. You've interviewed Roger recently, and you know him, and you know his politics. Personally, I was outraged by this Rolling Stone interview. It wasn't journalism to me. It was just a couple of guys jumping on another guy for his politics. And they took swipes at him that, in my view, were nonsensical. For example, they criticized Roger because he does not oppose the Assad regime in Syria. They claim that Assad has arrested, disrupted, and exiled what they called a secular opposition no such opposition exists in Syria. And indeed, the U.S. has supported al-Qaeda in Syria as the alternative to, to ISIS, not some notion of a secular opposition. They also claimed in this piece that Assad gassed his own people, despite the fact that the OPCW investigators say that's not true. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this interview and why gang up on Roger Waters all of a sudden. 
because it's good for their career. There it is. All careerism. I oppose. I was the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times. I spent seven years in the Middle East. I'm an Arabic speaker. Spent months of my life in Iraq. Like every Arabist, and I include the Arabists in the State Department, the CIA, the military. There was no dispute among any of us that invading Iraq would be the debacle it became. Absolutely correct. Um, uh, yeah, I mean it was, uh, and people forget that there were within the CIA pretty strong opposition among the Arabists. Yes, and that's why Rumsfeld created his little coterie of loonies to cook up their own. Yes, that's right. Libby and all the pearls. So. Uh, the, the, you know, at, in the climate after 9-11 to criticize or oppose the call to invade Iraq was a career killer. Uh, and, and especially big mainstream journalists, I uh, was at the New York Times then, they know uh, quite acutely what is good for their career and what isn't. And I can tell you that, uh, yeah, I haven't read it yet. I'm sure it was a complete hatchet job. Terrible. Um, but these journalists are going to be lauded for it and rewarded for it. I mean, it's the famous story of, uh, in the 1968 uh, uh, protests at Columbia University organized by SDS, the police, New York City police, went in and just beat these students savagely. And uh, Abe Rosenthal later became the executive editor of the New York Times, was sent up there, and all he wrote about was how they had trashed the president's office and these people were animals. And um, he, his, his rise was assured. It, in fact, was meteoric. So it's really, it's, it's, it's very disingenuous, but it's based on careerism. It's based on these people knowing what will get them lauded, what will help them advance within the news organization uh, that they are part of, or in the case of Rolling Stone, that magazine hierarchy. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure that 100% certain that's why they did it. It's uh, very cynical. They weren't in any way, they don't probably know anything about Syria or anywhere else, but they knew enough to know what was good for them. Mm-hmm. And they took it out on Roger, who's been very courageous. Now, it's, I did an interview with him. It's on YouTube just a week ago. Uh, and I admire, I would go, of course, I'm a huge fan of Pink Floyd anyway. <laughs> right, admire, me too. <laughs> I admire Roger. He, 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 you know, he doesn't have, he's quite successful and wealthy, and he could easily coast on that. But he's been very uh, outspoken on behalf of Julian Assange, on BDS. He has really taken the hard positions. And when you actually stand up for something, or you make a moral choice, you have enemies. And if you don't have enemies, it's probably not much of a moral choice. Yeah, I think you're right. The New York Times said today that talk of a civil war here in the United States has been flaring online, especially since the FBI search uh, at Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lago, I always say that incorrectly. Posts on Twitter Get this, about an upcoming civil war uh, are up 3,000% since the search, and there have been similar spikes on Facebook, Truth Social, Parler, Reddit, Telegram, and Gab, across the board. A civil war, of course, isn't going to happen, but academics and law enforcement officials are saying that we could be in for an increase in lone wolf violence. And perhaps the greater danger is that talk like this, which used to be relegated to the fringes, is now mainstream. Just look at Fox News or Newsmax, for example. What do you think this trend means, Chris? What do you think we should be prepared for? Well, it reminds me, you know, I cover the war in Yugoslavia. So it reminds me of the seizing up of the Yugoslav state. The war in Yugoslavia was precipitated by an economic crisis, hyperinflation, massive unemployment, 
as was true in Weimar. So these factors uh, uh, contribute to a rage, often a very legitimate rage, by the part of the working class and the white working class in particular, because it feels dethroned. It's why it embraces white supremacy and uh, wants to go back to this supposedly golden era of the 1950s when blacks were knew their place, etc. So uh, all of that is very real, and the inability on the part of the Biden administration or any administration at this point to do anything but cater to the interests of this rapacious corporate and oligarchic elite uh, means that the system of government uh, has essentially been surrendered or turned over to their interests. We saw it with uh, the the recent uh, disastrous decision in the UK to actually slash uh, tax wealthy mm-hmm. and corporations even more than they were already slashed. Remember, under Eisenhower, the the richest uh, corporations and individuals were taxed at ninety one percent. Right. I will remind our listeners was a Republican. So uh, all of that's gone. Uh, I I don't know that I see uh, an actual civil war. I've covered civil wars. Uh, in order for them to take place, you have to have a bordering state that is willing to uh, logistically support uh, an insurgency the way Tunisia did in the Algerian War of Independence, the way Nicaragua did when I covered the war in El Salvador. Um, we don't have that. But, of course, what we do have is a country awash in weapons, uh, and disproportionately those weapons are in the hands of uh, the white working class. Uh, I mean, I'm, much of my family's from Maine. I have neighbors. A guy across the street had 23 guns. I mean, it was a small arsenal. <laughs> um, and we see the rise of these kind of proto-fascist militias, like the Proud Boys, that recruit, or, or the Three Percenters, they recruit very heavily from the military. I mean, uh, uh, when uh, they breached the Capitol, you saw them line up. Uh, you know, these people clearly knew, you know, in a kind of human battering ram, that is, the way you break down a door, that is the way you were taught to break down uh, an entrance in the military. Uh, I look at the Proud Boys, and they have that kind of uh, menaced discipline uh, where you know that they can be triggered. So I think that we will see an uptick in violence because the system is seized up, is not responding. You have inflation. Energy prices are going through the roof. Food prices are going through the roof. Not as bad as Europe, um, and Europe, of course, now has this very heavy proto-fascist tilt to Sweden. Uh, Marie Le Pen gets 41% in France. Right. Um, I mean, people have to go back and look at history. It's instructive. It, it, it's not, you know, there are cha- differences. But in 1928, the Nazis polled less than 3%. Then you had the 1929 crash. By 1932, the largest party in Germany, because the ruling elites, much like Biden, who want to recreate the kind of ancien regime, which at this point nobody wants, are uh, serving the interests of the international banking system. And actually, you have about uh, 30 or I think 40 percent unemployment in the early 36 million insured workers in Germany are unemployed. And they, they make it extreme. They pass all these rules to make it very, very difficult to get unemployment insurance. I mean, people are literally going hungry. People are starving in Germany. And that's that is a political time bomb, and uh, we, in many ways, are are replicating that. Um, the, the 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 it's not just the onslaught of inflation against wages and prices, 
but the fact that since the 1970s, there's been wage stagnation because nobody will raise the minimum wage, which Biden promised he would do. So uh, all of those are kind of a recipe for social unrest. And given the fact that uh, we sell, uh, in essence, automatic or assault-style rifles to yeah. the public, um, it's it's not going to be pretty. It won't be a civil war. It's not. I don't think logistically it's possible to have a civil war, but it will be an increase in internecine violence. Uh, and uh, we we are already subject to all these nihilistic mass shootings. So it's a short step from there. And remember that pipe bomb that the guy in Florida sent to the. Uh, sure. I mean, if those bombs had gone off, he would have decapitated most of the leadership of the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And eventually, eventually, even what is Senate Susan Collins just said that the other day that eventually uh, she fears that a senator is going to get shot. I mean, you can't, that language of violence, that was also true in Yugoslavia. Milosevic used it for four years before he got anybody to go into Bosnia and start murdering people. But posting, House candidates posting pictures of uh, of uh, you know, Republicans only in name with targets on their back. I mean, you know, this uh, coupled with the kind of despair, frustration, and rage that is rippling through the country is a very dangerous recipe. So I certainly expect to see a heavy increase in violence because of all of those factors. Um, I want to ask you about Tony Blinken's trip to South America. The State Department said yesterday that he would be discussing migration. And the department released a statement saying that the U.S. and South American countries would be working together to slow migration to the United States. This sounds like a closed border plan to me, especially with midterm elections coming up and the Democrats taking hits on on the issue in places like Arizona, Texas and Florida. What do you think? Should we expect a uh, an announcement from the State Department in the coming weeks? Well, it, I don't know what they'll announce, but what they will do. So they haven't reversed Trump's policy of no. Central Americans and Mexico, first of all. Uh, so the policies are not radically different from the Trump administration. I think you can look to the response of the EU. So you have the migrants, uh, 37 million people uh, have been displaced or become refugees because of the wars, the debacles we orchestrated for two decades in the Middle East. They flee to Turkey and then smugglers take them into Greece. Well, uh, what's happened? Uh, Greece has set up these permanent detention centers uh, where people are held without right of asylum. Uh, both the EU and Greece, and now, of course, with the new government Turkey, they send boats out to push people back. They're using sound cannons. Uh, and, of course, these people drowned. Uh, the Pope Francis calls the Mediterranean Europe's largest cemetery. Uh, and a lot of this is funded by the EU. There's heavy money going into Turkey and Greece to keep the people back, keep the refugees back, uh, so they don't end up in France or Germany or Sweden or anywhere else. That coupled with the rise of authoritarian governments that play on that demonization of immigrants, very true in uh, Sweden, uh, very true in, the, in Italy, etc. these kind of proto-fascists. And, and the United States is not far behind. Uh, so as a coupled, of course, with the climate crisis, uh, you have this terrible drought in Somalia, uh, as people flee in desperation and these numbers increase and they're already increasing, 
then you will see uh, that we already are seeing a kind of solidification of these northern industrial climate fortresses where we lock these people out to suffer and die. And the United States is a full partner in that. Uh, The U.S. government is beginning its new fiscal year with $31 trillion in debt. Some economists say that this this ever-increasing debt imperils the economy. Others say it's an artificial measure because we owe the money to ourselves, essentially. Is there a way out of this, out of this, or does there even need to be a way out? Many economists are advocating higher taxes on the wealthy, which seems logical, but there's little support for doing that in Congress. Do we need to even address this this thing immediately? Well, we're all right until the, the dollar is dropped as the world's reserve currency, <laughs> and then we're in very serious trouble because our treasury bond, nobody wants to buy them. Right. The dollar will. I mean, you look at the 1950s when the pound sterling was dropped as the world's reserve currency. That's uh, Britain sank into a very deep depression. Uh, our empire wouldn't be sustainable. It's all all the wars. Everything is sustained with debt. Well, that's fine as long as oil and all commodities and everything else are traded in dollars. Uh, and that's why China and Russia, along with other countries like Iran, they're working very hard. Uh, to free themselves from the tyranny of the dollar. They do that, then we're in very, very serious trouble. That is, Alfred McCoy actually puts a date on it. That's very brave of him, 2030, I think. But at that point, then the empire collapses. They can play that game now uh, because the dollar is the world's reserve currency and dominates the SWIFT system. But if there is an alternative system set up, uh, then it isn't going to do us any good to print tons of more money because it will just feed inflation. Right. One last question for you. I asked one of our guests earlier today about uh, OPEC Plus, and I wanted to ask you about it, too. OPEC Plus decided earlier this morning to cut or or at least to recommend a cut of oil production by two million barrels a day. This cut should come in the next few weeks. But OPEC Plus was already producing three point six million barrels a day less than what it was authorized to produce. Do you think if this cut happens, it will hurt the U.S. and Europe, or is this just a numbers game? Do you think maybe it's serious enough to push us deeper into recession, or is this just an opportunity to make ourselves less reliant on on OPEC and its partners? Well, it'll definitely push us into recession because the price of oil is going to skyrocket, and that's why they're doing it. It's all about money. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, – I mean, I think Biden criticized it, didn't he? I mean – Oh, yeah. Who knows what Biden did? Uh, and Ro Khanna uh, came out swinging against the Saudis two or three days ago about this, too, anticipating that there was going to be a production cut. Yeah, it's greed. And, uh, of course, it's going to fuel the recession. Uh, energy prices are already astronomical in Europe. I think uh, in this month, there's energy bills are in the U.K. are supposed to go up 80%. Yeah. People are... Really, and they've got 10% inflation. So it, 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 people are really going to hurt this winter. And you have the head of NATO, head of the IMF. They're all talking about social unrest. This is all a recipe for social unrest. And what they fear most are strikes, because strikes are the one weapon that the working class has to actually cripple global capital. That's, the, that's why they work so hard to destroy unions and have done such an effective job of destroying unions, as well as the right to strike within the United States, because that is the only uh, force that we have that we can employ 
uh, to gain rights, which we saw in the 1930s, the eight-hour workday, weekends off, and the child labor. That all came through radical strikes and radical unions, or militant strikes and militant unions. So, um, yeah, so this will only exacerbate uh, all of that. And and the ruling elite uh, is worried, and they have every right to be worried. I mean, in fact, you have a fusion of the ruling oligarchs in the establishment Republican Party and the Democratic Party. They become one party. You have Robert Wright calling for Liz Cheney to run for president. <laughs> don't know. <laughs> something like that. Uh, and and uh, because they don't like the proto-fascists, not because they themselves have any democratic proclivities, uh, but because um, it, they'll lose their privileged purchase of power. <laughs> Indeed. Well, that was the voice of Chris Hedges. Chris is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who's a former Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times. He's also written for the Share Post and Truth Dig, and his work now appears on Substack. You can check him out there. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what exactly happened with Hurricane Ian and Florida, uh, and whether some of this death and destruction could have been avoided, either uh, by officials acting more uh, efficiently with the data they had or uh, through that data being presented in different ways to better enable good decisions. We're going to talk about whether we need to rethink some of the ways we uh, try to predict the behavior of hurricanes and uh, whether we need to, you know, hold some people accountable for uh, making late decisions. Whether we need to or not, right? Because we are still talking about the weather. We are joined by Denise Isaac. She's a meteorologist. She's worked with TV networks like NBC and Telemundo. Denise, thanks for joining us again. No problem. My pleasure. Michelle and John, how are you today? Welcome We're back. Great. I'm I'm very curious about some of these questions about evacuation orders and but also about the way we predict and communicate hurricane risks. Um, and so I guess I'll start with these evacuation orders. The main question seems to be about Lee County in Florida. That was the county that has seen the most deaths by far as a result of Hurricane Ian and the most destruction. Lee County officials issued evacuation orders less than 24 hours before the storm hit, even though neighboring counties had already issued such orders. Um, Lee County and Florida Governor, uh, Lee County officials and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have said we were following the data. And so that raises questions about the the data and how we uh, disseminate it. Um, So according to these reports, in the case of Hurricane Ian, computer models used to predict the storm's path contradicted each other until about 36 hours before landfall, which left a pretty short window of time for evacuation orders to be drawn up and communicated. And there was a piece in Axios noting that the American forecast model, uh, the global forecast system, 
predicted for days that Ian would strike the Florida Panhandle or the Big Bend area as a Category 2 storm, while the European model consistently signaled that it would tack more to the south and hit Florida as a stronger storm. The European model ended up being far closer to the actual outcome. And so just to start, do you, it, it, is this important? Is, is this a signal that the U.S. needs to rethink or upgrade its storm modeling systems? Or is this just, you know, it, it could be the reverse next time? So there's so many questions, right, when it comes to models. Well, we have so many different models, not only the European, the GFS, there's also the NAM, there's also the Canadian model. So they were all, uh, you know, the spaghetti plots were pretty much all over Florida. Yeah. No one was taking it, you know, anywhere else. So, you know, all over Florida. It's very important to note that these models, they're good. You know, the GFS or the Euro, the Euro is good usually with tropical systems, but not all the time. GFS sometimes hits it, and no one really talks about it. Sometimes these two systems are incorrect, and the NAM hits it, you know, and it's correct. But this time around, so, yes, we had the GFS going towards the panhandle and then the Euro hitting it closer to the Tampa Bay area. Um, So it's important to just follow the National Hurricane Centers, Mm -hmm. right, because they take into account all these different models and kind of do an average. It's also very important to know that it's very difficult to track a hurricane system because it's all depending on variables, at least from my point of view. You know, Ian, we knew it was going to intensify rapidly. So that's something people can't say, wait, they said it was going to be a Cat 3, you know, we all knew, and even when I came onto the show, I said, this is going to be a really strong hurricane, Cat yeah. 4, Cat 5, you know, and the difference between 4 and 5 doesn't really matter because it's just going to be destruction all around. So one thing I want to know or point out is that there was a front, a cold front coming down from the Alabama area. So, the you know, how fast this front was moving was going to be – you know, uh, very critical as to was going to push in farther south or bring it more to the panhandle. So these things, the models were taking into account, but it's mother nature. It's really hard to predict the exact movement because it all depends on the steering flow of the wind. So yeah. with that said, um, you know, we all want to know what's going to happen, right? That's our new world. We need to know exactly what's going to happen next and when. Um, the National Hurricane Center, I thought, had a good forecast. But, yes, the way we um, read the information, the whole cone of uncertainty, the line, you know, viewers, and viewers, I encompass everyone, everyone watching a TV station, sometimes don't really know what all the things on a graphic means. So now it's the term of, you know, time of the meteorologist to explain Right. Um, sometimes you have a lot of time to explain, digest the information. Sometimes you don't, and you just expect people to know what you know. So I think that's where the issue lies. Yeah. Let me. I, I want to jump in and say, yeah, I think th- there are limits to how accurate any prediction can be. Right. I mean, we we hope and presume they'll continue to evolve, and we can get more and more accurate. But it seems like where there can be some real changes is how well risk is communicated and visualized. And yeah, you you talk about this cone of uncertainty graphic that the National Hurricane Center uses, where it takes a bunch of different models, creates this sort of 
cone where uh, the hurricane is expected to track. But it seems as though people sometimes don't understand the risk that that cone is intending to communicate. Uh, and so, yeah, I wonder if there are better ways if, if you know, we should stop uh, trying so much to predict, predict a direct sort of geographical path and instead uh, talk more specifically about risk and consequence for people who are within that cone. Do you, do you think that is an area where, you know, the, what this path, you're looking at a map, right? You're looking at a line on a map. Is it, is, are there ways we could better communicate what that is going to mean for you in your home uh, instead of sort of just going, ooh, is it going to go left? Is it going to go right? Is it going to go north? Is it going to go south? Exactly. And I, I, I completely agree. I, I believe we should get rid of the line. Um, I know when I used to work at TV station in Miami, we didn't use the line. We talked about the cone of uncertainty. You know, this system could wobble north, west, east, and you explain what happens if it does shift, right? So I think you do need to better communicate and explain to those watching what the cone of uncertainty is. I believe we shouldn't get rid of the cone of uncertainty because it at least gives you a range of what places could get hit. This storm was so huge. I mean, the eye was just ginormous. So, it, you know, it affected people from Tampa all the way to Naples. Um, my... My biggest thing with this storm, as I started to, you know, track it and turn on the TV and listen to TV stations, I feel everyone just jumped on the bandwagon of Tampa Bay. Yeah. Um, big city, you know, it hasn't been hit since 1921. So I feel everyone went there to Tampa Bay and forgot about the rest of the western coast of the of Florida. And even if meteorologists were talking about, hey, Naples, you know, keep an eye on this storm. Yeah. Hey, Venice, keep an eye. The, you know, the big dogs were still Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay's going to get hit. You know, all the reporters went to Tampa Bay. So I feel, you know, no one wants to be left behind. So everyone jumping on the same bandwagon really wasn't a good thing for those living in Naples, unless they were following their local meteorologist who told them, hey, you know, if you've been living in Florida long enough, you know these systems wobble, you know things could change drastically, keep an eye on, you know, the storm, the development, because these storms, they could change track, even yeah. if it's two miles, two miles makes a huge difference in just five hours, right? Because it all depends with what they interact. Yeah. And so I want to ask then, uh, you know, it's one thing. I, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Tampa was the big story. It was going to be historic, et cetera. And so you did have the media jump on that. Uh, do Does that absolve uh, officials in Lee County? You know, do they have a different level of responsibility for uh, being able to see past the hype and go, yeah, OK, it's going to maybe if it hits Tampa, it's going to be a big story. But that doesn't mean that it's any less likely to cause destruction here. Do you think that do you think that they should have acted differently or do you think that they were really uh, they did the best they could with the information they had? And, you know, sometimes sometimes uh, not that sometimes you make an error, but sometimes that data doesn't pan out the way you think it will. Do you do you think that they need to do some soul searching, I guess? I do think they 
drop the ball a little bit. Um, if I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a local emergency manager or anything, but as a meteorologist, seeing that the entire West coast of Florida was under a storm surge warning on the 26th of September, I would have told all people living along the coast, please move inland, please evacuate. Um, so you know, the local official in Lee County saying it 24 hours prior when Tampa had already said, you know, done the evacuations 48 hours in advance, I feel like they should have done it at the same time Tampa did um, because this area was under a storm surge warning. But once again, I feel that information of the storm surge warning you know, fell through the cracks. No one really, not no one, meteorologists were talking about it. Yeah. But, you know, the big media wasn't mentioning that part. And when I came onto your show, I also said, you know, this storm is going to be storm surge. Mm-hmm. All the water from the Gulf of Mexico being pushed inland, that's going to destroy and flatten towns. And that's exactly what happened. So, you know, this storm wasn't about the wind. Of course, it's a very strong wind. The destruction came from the storm surge. So, you know, to just kind of, you know, a conclusion to all of this is, yes, we need to do better with communication, communicate the risk. We all need to learn or find a way to be on the same page um, when it comes to understanding the risk um, and the lack of communication um, and nowadays, a lot of people just choose to either be numb to advice, right? You know, because I'm pretty sure some locals, you know, they were uh, told to evacuate or, hey, I don't think it would be a good idea to stay there. But no, I've, I've been through Irma. I've been through Charlie. Yeah. I've been through, right? Um, and then this time around was different. So some people are just stubborn or some people can't evacuate. So we can't just put everyone into the same both as the saying, you know, you couldn't evacuate because there's some people in living mo- mobile homes that couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, but, but there needs to be uh, more of a, of a, you know, way to, to really just communicate the message better. You yeah. know, we all need to understand what storm surge warning is because this is also a new term. Before 2017, this term or this phrase didn't exist. Um, huh. This is something new from the National Hurricane Center. Storm surge warning indicating what's going to happen when the water comes into land. So, you know, comparing it to Charlie, because a lot of people were comparing it to Charlie, Charlie happened in 2004. So we didn't have that mm-hmm. um, available then. Now, now we have it. So I feel like we, we need to evolve. We need to continue to learn, not mute a TV station, <laughs> um, not think that, oh, they just, you know, they just trying to be, um, you know, sensationalize the weather as the saying, uh, you know, it's going to be a big storm. We're all going to die. No, we need to take the precautions and we need to listen to local meteorologists, local officials, but, um, you know, Lee County, this is a question I asked myself after landfall and after seeing all the damage, you know, I was like, wait, I don't think they really had an evacuation order until that morning or probably even the night prior. So that was something that was kind of bothering me on the inside because I, 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 you know, I said to myself, they should have done something sooner. Yeah. Yeah. I also 
want to. It also seems like the storm surge is the is the key thing here, right? You might be out of the the area where the wind is going to be the strongest, but that storm surge is going to you know encompass a much larger area, and uh, you know. Even if you think you're not going to get a direct hit, uh, that water is still going to be coming your way. So I wanted to also talk just about the level of destruction uh, we have seen because it is, you know, it is pretty awful. It's, uh, you know, flattened houses. They're still looking for people. They're still looking for um, people who died. They're still looking for people who survived. And I wonder if even if we make all of these adjustments that we've been talking about, how much of this destruction could really have been avoided through better preparation, right? I think better preparation uh, helps lower death tolls, right? People, you know, it, it helps protect people's lives and their health. Uh, but I, I wonder really when you were talking about a storm surge this powerful, how much really could have been done to protect the property, if anything? I really don't think um, there's much more that people could have done to protect their property. I mean, we've seen some homes that had very minimal damage where the hurricane made landfall, but most of them were just gone. I'm pretty sure a lot of the newer homes were built to code. The older homes probably were the ones that were gone completely. Um, But when it's a storm like this, uh, like, Katrina, it's just, you know, it's just the power of nature. It's, I don't think there's much to be done. And when the water comes, the water comes just with a force. So one thing, you know, after seeing this and going through this, one thing I personally will start telling people to add to their hurricane kit, it's probably a floating device. Because mm. one thing that's in the hurricane kit but with storm surge becoming more and more of a thing, especially in Florida, and, you know, um, I think a floating device is not a bad idea. Um, and a lot of people try to survive in their boats. You know, people tried to do as much as they could, but, yeah. you know, what about those who couldn't really evacuate? Yeah. Where do they go? They have nowhere to go. So I mean, there, there are some great survival stories, too, of people. Yes who were able to lay on their mattress and that's how they survived, you know, so it's just amazing. But, uh, you know, this is kind of what you get when you choose to live in places like Florida or the Caroline. And it sounds kind of mean, but it's not, you know, I live in Florida too. This is part of your life. You have to be prepared for big storms. They don't happen every year, but they do happen. Yeah, yeah. I think that there is a point beyond which you cannot protect yourself against the forces of nature and you cannot necessarily predict them. That was Denise Isaac. Uh, She's a meteorologist. She's worked with networks like NBC and Telemundo. Denise, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great day. I think we can take one last quick break here and then come back. I have got some I've got some celebrity headlines for you. Yeah, okay. I've got some non-celebrity headlines. Uh, there are a couple more stories to share here on Sounds Political good. Misfits. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik. We'll talk to you in just one sec. Welcome back 
to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. Couple last headlines for you. Starting with one that I is a story that we are going to get into a little bit more in a, in a future show, and that is this news uh, that the police in Edmonton, Canada, yeah, have for the first time used DNA phenotyping in hopes of identifying a suspect in a crime. In this case, it's a sexual assault that happened in 2019. Uh, So the Edmonton Police Department is saying this is a last resort. They have partnered with a Virginia company called, oh, what's it called? Uh, Parabon Nanolabs uh, to take DNA from the person who is suspected of, of committing this crime and using that DNA, the company produced trait predictions for this person's ancestry, eye color, hair color, skin color, freckling, and face shape. But I don't know. I think this is pretty disturbing. And then you couple that with this new AI technology that can come up with what really looks like a human face and yeah. no such person exists. Yeah. And then you couple this with facial recognition, the, yeah. you know, the in- increased use of facial rec- uh, recognition technology that yes. we know uh, does not is not equally accurate across things like race and isn't necessarily particularly accurate just in yeah. general. I mean, I'm looking at this this picture that this phenotype is generated and just thinking, man, you could you could drag in so many people looking yes. at that face that has been completely generated by, uh, you know, through through a test tube. I just I think that this is a little concerning. Um, so we will talk about this. Yeah. Maybe even tomorrow. Yes. Um, also, your boy, Alec Baldwin. Not yeah. off the hook when it comes to criminal charges, but uh, has reached a settlement in the civil wrongful death lawsuit filed by the family of Helena Hutchins, who was killed on the set of the Rust movie. You know, it kind of made me mad because what they did in this settlement is is they gave her uh, 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 executive producer status. Yeah, or they gave her husband that her status. Her husband. So right. I guess then he, that means he's going to get some... Sh- Prof, some amount of the movie's profits. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, he'll get something. It also makes him eligible for awards. I mean, it just seems like such a cynical thing yeah. to do. I mean, that's only part of the settlement, or yeah. according to this Variety report. So we don't know the terms of the settlement. Uh, her husband is saying. You know, he believes the death was a terrible accident. He's not interested in recrimination or uh, attributing blame. Um, They're also going to restart production. Yeah, which really surprised me. Yeah. I mean, I was not thinking that this was some big artistic work, you know what I mean, that was making any kind of uh, statement. But I guess... They want to continue with it. Yeah. I see also they want to continue quickly because it involves a child actor. Yeah. Who is going to maybe age out of a role. Uh, but yeah, all of it is very, uh, seems strange. Well, you know, I'm not going to judge you either way, but yeah. And this, again, does not have anything to do with whether or not um, Alec Baldwin and a handful of other people involved with this production. Separate issue. Face criminal charges. Yep. For their activity. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, Another story that I just saw uh, that just broke an hour ago 
is uh, that apparently the United States is saying they think Ukraine uh, assassinated Daria Dugina. The United Russia. States is saying that. This is what the United States is saying. Daria Dugina is the son of Alexander Dugin, who... The daughter, no? Oh, sorry, daughter, yeah. of course. Uh, she was a media figure. You know, she had her own career. Her father is, uh, you know, sometimes uh, cr- credited in air quotes with being a an influence on Vladimir Putin. The extent of that influence, I think, is debatable. He's not someone who's got a direct line to the Kremlin, but he is someone who gets a lot of blame for the philosophical direction mm-hmm. the Russian government takes. Um, but yeah, I do not. I think that this is uh, an anonymously sourced report. Uh, but we are being told by the New York Times that U.S. intelligence agencies believe parts of the Ukrainian government authorized the car bomb attack uh, that killed Daria Dugina and that it was, I think, is still supposed that was supposed to kill her father or was supposed to kill both of them. And he happened to take a different car. Uh, officials say the United States took no part in the attack. Uh, didn't provide yeah, intelligence, didn't not. provide any other assistance. Uh, they were not aware of the operation ahead of time. Again, according to the New York Times' anonymous intelligence sources, they would have opposed the killing had they been consulted, and they admonished Ukrainian officials over the assassination. Wow. Is this a draft? Is this a draft document for a report one month from now that just replaces uh, assassination in Russia with explosion at the Nord Stream pipeline? You read my mind. Are we going (laughs) to see the next leak saying, all right, all right, we did it? Yeah, I don't know. No. Or is the next leak just going to be like Ukraine did it again? We didn't help them with this one. Uh, We didn't know they were doing it. Right. And we are really mad about it, but nothing we can do it now. It doesn't change our relationship. I don't know. Um, I don't think I, <laughs> I like any of it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. And later on, people are going to be writing about, well, fog of war, lots of confusion. Mm-hmm. You know, the, it, we were complaining. I was complaining earlier about this. Uh, Who is it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. American officials have been frustrated with Ukraine's lack of transparency about its military and covert plans, especially on Russian soil. Do you think, do you think that they are really, I mean, especially if we are directly providing them with intelligence, I don't know. How much are they, how, how much do you think Ukraine at this point is able to hide from the U.S. about the conduct Practically of its war? Practically nothing. I, I guarantee you there are as many American intelligence officers at the Ukrainian intelligence service as there are Ukrainians. Yeah. I, there's obviously going to be a little more to talk about this tomorrow, but we got to leave it here for today. Thanks to everybody who came in and joined us. Thanks to all our producers and engineers. On behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow.